the word of God from the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verses 29 through 36. At the appointed time, he, the despised and deceitful king, will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Kittim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the holy covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame, and they will be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, friends. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to open the word again with you this morning. I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures. There should be one under the chair in front of you. And to turn to Daniel chapter 11, it's in the 790s, I think, in that uh, Bible underneath the chair in front of you. But before we get into uh, the message this morning, um, I want to share an update just on where we are at financially as we think about the end of the year. Uh, And uh, I've been so excited to have Craig and Courtney come up and share about um, what God did in Africa and Ireland. Uh, And as we think about the work of God going forward... We want to be careful not to become isolated in our thinking and get so focused on purchasing this building that we begin to build our own little kingdom as if that's what matters. Uh, No, God's at work in many different ways, in many different places, even here in our city. So we want to celebrate those things. And yet at the same time, realize that God's given us an opportunity to establish a beachhead here in Hill City. So... We've been announcing the number 28,000 as our above and beyond giving goal for these last two months of the year. So if you add that 28,000 to our budgeted giving of November and December, that equals 66,000. So I don't want to confuse anyone when I mention a different number here. Uh, So the 28,000 is on top of November giving and December giving. Well, as of this past Monday we have reached 28,000 of that 66 total. Friends, that's 42% of our goal. And that's through your faithful giving and generosity. We want to stop and celebrate that. And uh, December giving is always higher across churches, and our church is no different. So we're just grateful for what God has provided to this point, and we're going to continue to pray that he would provide as we lean into this here at the end of December. We wanted to mark this and celebrate it even as we press in to see what God might do here in the next few weeks. Okay, enough about finances. Let's focus now on the Word of God. But actually, before we get into that, I need to tell you about a con. There's actually been a big con that the children of the Midwest 
have been pulling on their parents for years now. Have you heard about this? It's called St. Nick's Day. It's December 5th or 6th, and I'm not talking about December 25th. St. Nick's Day is a day celebrated. We learned about it up in Wisconsin, and kids loved it because a full three weeks before Christmas, they would get presents. As if there wasn't another day in December, they were going to get presents, right? As if there wasn't another day that was marked by generosity. Now, full disclosure, since our time in Wisconsin, Liz has tried to get me on to the St. Nick's train celebrating December 5th or 6th, yet unsuccessfully. Now, in all seriousness, St. Nick's or St. Nicholas Day developed to celebrate the generosity of a 4th century bishop in Turkey. And yes, he is the St. Nicholas that the fabled and famed Santa Claus is built off of. And don't hear anything in what I'm saying as a social commentary on whether or not you should celebrate Christmas. That's not what this is about. But it probably wouldn't surprise us if the children in the Midwest, specifically Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, and Iowa, had actually managed to pull off a giant con and fooled their parents that this dude had had existed simply so they could get presents in the beginning of December as well as at the end. And why wouldn't we be surprised if that was the case? Well, because no human being likes to wait. As a race, we humans don't wait well. We want what we want when we want it. In the words of Simon Choksi and his daughter Grace on the Disney Plus series, The Santa Clauses, what do you want? Everything. When do you want it? Now. Well, friends, the Advent season is all about waiting. And it's about cultivating the ability to wait well. Cultivating deeper longings that can't be satisfied with good food and bright lights and wrapped gifts. It's about cultivating a longing for the return of Christ, his second coming. Rather than focusing 100% of our energy on celebrating the fact that he has come once and then moving on with life, Advent allows us to connect celebration of his first coming with eager anticipation of his second. And it's hard work because we don't like to wait And the reality is, ever since the first disciples stood looking up into heaven as Jesus ascended, the church has had a stiff neck waiting for him to return. But as we wait, we don't wait in a vacuum. We wait in a context. And that context often produces and includes suffering, pain, hardships. Trials, tears, sorrow. While it may seem odd that the book of Daniel is where we are landing in our Advent series at the end of this year, it actually could not be more appropriate. The righteous remnant of Israel was waiting in exile and in suffering for deliverance, for the fulfillment of God's promises and for the Messiah to come. And Jesus' first Advent was the answer to their longing. 
And so, friends, we can identify with these Old Testament saints in their suffering and in their waiting, in their longing for the Messiah to come. Suffering enables us to wait well. Because suffering postures us to press beyond what's shallow to the deep heart level of trauma and pain. Suffering forces us to think more deeply about life and the meaning of it. C.S. Lewis said this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And suffering is a desire-making furnace. It forms and crystallizes our desires. And those desires, if we allow them to, can exponentially increase our longing for the new creation, which will come about when Christ returns. And so for the Christian, suffering becomes a tool that we can leverage in our lives to cultivate a longing Not merely for the removal of that suffering, but the removal of that suffering by the coming of a person, Jesus, and his second advent. So today's sermon is going to be a bit different than previous sermons in our series in Daniel. We're going to actually take some time harvesting a bit of the work that we've put in over the last couple months. So we're going to use just one section in the text that was just read for us as a beginning place to talk about the reasons for suffering. And then we're going to end with scripture and make reference to what the Bible acknowledges about suffering throughout. We're going to name some realities throughout our time together without proof texting from the Bible. Realities that you know to be true because, well, you've experienced it. But maybe you've never named them before. And then at the end, we're going to see how Jesus meets us in our suffering through the gospel. So, let's highlight several events that Daniel records for us in Isaiah 11. Look down at verse 30. Then the despised king will rage against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the holy covenant, skip down, They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly towards the covenant. Skip down. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame, and they will be captured and plundered for a time. Skip down. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come. At the appointed time. Now remember, Daniel's 10, 11, and 12, these three chapters is one vision, one unit. So as we zoom in here on a few verses of this vision, we see a king is raging against the covenants of God and those who embrace it. And we see some of the followers of God are going to fall by the sword and flame. And others are going to be captured and plundered for a time. So what can we glean from this? Well, you may remember from a few weeks ago that the suffering in these verses were future to Daniel, and we saw that they were fulfilled in the time of 
Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we're not going to go through all of those details again, but let me just note that the word Epiphanes, the title Antiochus Epiphanes, means God manifest. Antiochus intended to be viewed as God. He was one of the original Antichrists. But the scene changes in verse 40 that we didn't actually read, and it seems to take us beyond Antiochus Epiphanes to the time of the end and the ultimate Antichrist, of which Antiochus was merely a shadow. It describes a period of time that we have not yet seen, a time of distress like has never yet occurred. So friends, whether we look to the past or to the future, this is the reality. Suffering follows the followers of God. Suffering follows the followers of God. So this morning, let's raise three questions that suffering often produces in our lives. Now, we may or may not find clear answers to those questions, but the raising of those questions will then direct us to the greatest of all realities in our suffering. So question number one, perhaps you've asked that, this very question, why do I suffer? Now, this question gets to the reason behind suffering. It's a natural question. George Schaub, in his book on Daniel, writes, A basic human need is to find some kind of sense in suffering. The question, why, is appropriate. And the story of the Bible answers the question, giving us at least five reasons for suffering. First, humans suffer because we're broken people. We are broken spiritually, we're broken emotionally, we're broken physically. If the likeness of God in man had not been marred by Adam's sin against God in Genesis 3, then suffering would never have existed. It's easy to blame God for suffering, right? Why would God allow that? But... Suffering is a human creation. It's a product of human autonomy, of the self being put in the place of God. And any ideology that places self at the top cannot lead to human flourishing. It can only lead to human suffering. Since Adam's rebellion in Genesis 3, every human being is broken. Our spiritual lives, our emotional lives, our physical bodies are all damaged. That's reason number one. Reason number two, humans also suffer because we live in proximity to people who are also broken. Broken physically, spiritually, and emotionally. People who make decisions that cause additional spiritual, emotional, and physical pain. We face the consequences not only of our own sin, for which we are guilty, but then we experience the suffering of being sinned against by others. James reminded his readers in the New Testament, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that rage war within you? You, plural, rather your Let's try this again. You, plural, desire and do not have. You, plural, murder and covet and cannot obtain. You, plural, fight and wage war. We experience suffering because we live in proximity to other broken people. 
Reason number three, as humans, we suffer because we live in a broken world, not just among broken people. God cursed the natural world because of Adam's rebellion against God. Man is now responsible for the breaking of this beautiful world. So as the states of Tennessee and Kentucky experienced last night, natural disasters happen. Tornadoes occur, floods and hurricanes and volcanoes and wildfires and earthquakes. And friends, we should do all we can to steward the natural creation well, full stop. But the natural world is broken. And we're arrogant to think we can fix it. Romans 8, 20 through 22, for the creation was subjected to futility, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together with labor pains until now. Why? Because of the fall, because of mankind's rebellion. And we must remember that the root cause of earth's brokenness was spiritual, man's rebellion. And only a solution that goes as deep as the problem can ultimately solve ecological disasters and challenges. But the fourth reason for suffering is this. We live in a world dominated by beastly earthly powers. The book of Daniel memorably illustrates this and powerfully illustrates this in Chapter 7 and chapter 8. The powers that move and shake this world, often expressed in kingdoms and governments and governmental leaders, but also expressed in industries and economies, they are rarely friendly to God's image bearers, even though they themselves are made up of or produced by God's image bearers. And fifth, humans suffer because... Well, we don't like to think about this one, but there are spiritual unseen powers at work, demonic spiritual powers that empower and enable the beastly earthly powers. And these demonic powers love to hate and destroy God's image bearers. And they especially detest the presence of God worshipers. More on that next week. So five reasons, five reasons the Bible gives for suffering. And like five colors on the palette of an artist, these reasons get mixed together in an infinite number of matrices, an infinite number of colors, if you will. And so your suffering is, yes, unique to you, and yet at the same time, it is overlaps much and finds much in commonality with the suffering of those around you and with my suffering because we are each broken human beings living in the midst of other broken human beings in a broken world under the structures of beastly earthly power with active demonic powers who hate image bearers. So I wonder as you think about your life right now what does what does the matrix of your suffering look like? Which of these elements can you see overlapping to create, well, the portrait of what you find yourself experiencing even as you sit here this morning? 
Suffering is disorienting. So the second question that suffering often produces within us, what's real in my suffering? What's real? This question begin to hit, hit at, begins to hit at what's really real. You see, suffering causes us to believe false narratives. We begin to live our lives according to stories we or others have made up for us. And it's understandable because we are meaning makers, as Bob Thune reminded us several weeks ago. We're meaning makers. We, we decorate our homes and we tell stories and we create traditions because we're seeking to make sense of life, to make meaning. Well, in suffering, we may begin to believe false narratives in order to make sense of suffering. So we begin to believe that God is absent or unseeing. After all, if he knew, why would he allow me to suffer? Or we begin to believe that God is unreal or non-existent. If he existed, if the God of the Bible actually existed, why would he allow suffering? Or we begin to believe that God exists, but he's not, real, uh, not good and loving. If he was good, if he loves like he says he loves, why does he allow suffering? Or we, we begin to believe that God isn't all-powerful or all-competent. If he could stop suffering, why doesn't he? Or we begin to believe that God isn't all-wise. Surely, there's a better way that he could have chosen to accomplish the ends that he intends, right? Surely, he could have done that without suffering. So we begin to question his very wisdom. He didn't choose well. We think he's unwise. But I think one of the most compelling arguments for the truthfulness of the claims of Christianity is the shocking realism of the Bible. There is no idealism in its pages, only realism. And the Christian scriptures don't argue that humanity is capable of moving beyond suffering. The thousands of years of human existence prove we are not. The Christian scriptures don't turn a blind eye to suffering. Just think about the book of Daniel. Think about we've ex what we've explored together over the last couple of months. Think about the suffering in the book. Suffering like a city being destroyed, a nation ceasing to exist, and four teenage boys getting ripped from their homeland and sent to live in a foreign culture with foreign ways. Or suffering like those teenagers getting lumped in with hundreds of others and told they're going to be executed because of their failure or others' failures to interpret a dream. Suffering like after surviving that ordeal... Those three boys being thrown into a blazing furnace to die for the horrific crime of refusing to give inappropriate allegiance to a human being. Suffering like living for decades, waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled among a people who despise your God and view him as impotent. Suffering like being thrown into a den of hungry lions for the awful crime of praying to God. And when we experience suffering, like and unlike these 
Hebrew young men did in the book of Daniel. When we experience suffering, what we once knew in the light, we tend to forget in the dark. Suffering tempts us to throw out what we once knew to be real and to lean into what seems to be real. Doesn't it? I mean, at least it does for me. Maybe you're immune to doubts like these in the suffering you experience or that you see others experience. But my guess is many of us are not immune to those doubts. Friends, this is one reason why the book of Daniel is so important. It recasts our existence in the light of reality. It doesn't dodge reality. It doesn't try to explain away reality. There's no bait and switch. There's no gaslighting. It acknowledges the reality of suffering, and then it pulls back the curtain to show us, one, that suffering is not unique to us, and two, that suffering is not unimportant to God. And that brings us to the third question, suffering often surfaces in our lives. The question is this, where is God in my suffering? And this is the question of relationship in suffering. Where is God in your suffering? Where is God? Maybe you should let the characters that we've met in the book of Daniel take a stab at answering this question, shall we? Let's, let's interview them. Daniel, where was God when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem? Answer, he was present, delivering the covenant king in the city that bears the name of God into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He was overseeing the calamity, fulfilling his purposes, protecting his people. Okay, well, Daniel, where was God when you were forced into exile and assimilation into a pagan culture? Oh, he was right there with us. He was giving us favor with those we came in contact with. He was enabling us to be a blessing. He was giving us, giving us gifts to bless those around us, putting us in positions to fulfill his good purposes. Okay, enough with you, Daniel. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Where was God when you were being carried towards the furnace and felt the vicious heat on your face? Oh, he was waiting for us in the furnace. He was preparing to loose our bonds, to protect us, to vindicate us. Okay, well, back to you, Daniel. Where was God when you faithfully prayed to him and then for that got thrown into your certain death in the den of lions? Oh, no, even there he was with me. He charged his angels to shut the mouth of the lions and preserved me until my work was finished. But Daniel, where was God when kingdoms rose and fell and the fortunes of God's people rose and fell with those kingdoms? And where was God when Belshazzar fell to Darius? Well, he was in the room. He was orchestrating it all. He was judging the godlessness of Belshazzar and appointing Cyrus as the deliverer of his people. Okay, Daniel, but where is your God in all your apocalyptic visions of kingdoms, superseding kingdoms, and kings warring against kings, and 
kings warring against the people of God. Oh, he is the one raising up kings and putting down kings. He is present with his people as they suffer. And he determines the allotment of time each ruler is allowed to cause such suffering. And he is providentially orchestrating all of creation towards the day when he will hand all authority into the hand of the Son of Man, the second Adam, the great king, the Lord Jesus. And on that day, all authority and power of the universe will be given to him. So where is God in suffering? He's present. He's near. And yes, sometimes the darkness hides his lovely face. The suffering obscures our vision to see him. Our pain numbs us to the reality of the reality. The reality that he is here. But pain and darkness and suffering cannot change that reality. He is near. He is present. He is, in a phrase, with us. But how can we be sure? How can we know this? Well, because God came in the flesh, receiving suffering from us, suffering for us, and suffering with us. As long as I can remember, Emmanuel has been my favorite name for Jesus. It means God with us. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes? Antiochus, God manifest, who died? Emmanuel, God with us. The truer, realer, better Epiphanies, God manifest. Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1. And while he never carried the brokenness of our spiritual nature, Jesus carried the brokenness of our human nature. His body aged, his cells wore out, he bled and he suffered socially, enduring the rejection of family and dear friends. He suffered the public shame of nakedness he suffered hunger and thirst he suffered on the under the beastly powers of his day empowered by the demonic forces waging war against the snake crushing seed of the woman you can be sure god is with you as you suffer because jesus came in the flesh to suffer in the person of jesus he received suffering at our hands due to our sin and rejection And what did we just sing a few minutes ago? He will carry our curse and death he will reverse so we can be called daughters and sons. But let's ask Jesus a similar question to what we asked Daniel and his friends. Jesus, where was the Father when you hung on that cross in torment and agony? Bearing the guilt of your people as sin offering before God. Where was your father when you experienced the darkest hours of human suffering the world has ever seen? Hear him answer. He forsook me. He turned his back on me. He abandoned me. 
to my suffering. But Jesus, why? Why would the Father who claims to be love, who called you his dearly beloved son, why would he forsake you? Hear him answer. Because that's what we agreed upon. So that Father, Son, and Spirit might welcome you, beloved child of God, into the presence of God now and forever, eternally without end. I became a curse for you, dear one, so that you might be deeply beloved of God forever. And Christian, no matter how deeply you suffer as you follow Jesus in this life, his Father and he has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Hear Jesus say, God forsook me so that we might never forsake you. I am now and forever Emmanuel, God with us, God with you, present, always present in the midst of your pain and suffering. So friend, yes, you will still suffer. I will still suffer. But because of Emmanuel, because of what Emmanuel suffered, our suffering is never meaningless and it is limited. Did you catch that back in Daniel 11? Look at verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined and purified and cleansed. Suffering is not meaningless. Until the time of the end. Suffering is limited. Friends, the followers of God are followed by suffering. God is present with them in that suffering. And he, dear Christian, will meet you in the furnace. He will show up in the pit. And he will redeem that suffering so it refines and purifies and cleanses our character so that we look more and more like the beloved Jesus. And that suffering has a limit. It will end. So Christian, in faith, we follow Jesus, Emmanuel, our God with us. Joyfully we follow him into suffering And through suffering. Out the other side. Because he's coming again. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your humble first coming. We praise you for your willing suffering. We adore you for taking upon yourself our suffering, the suffering we cause by our sin and the suffering we experience from the brokenness of others. And we pray humbly along with the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus, do not delay. See the suffering of your broken world. Come to make your blessings known as far as the curse is found. Lord Jesus, while you tarry, would you cultivate by your spirit within us a deeper longing for your second coming, even as we at this time of year celebrate your first. 
And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray, who with the Father and with the Spirit reigns one God, both now and forever. Amen.